This is Nate Hansen and Tim Ritter. We are Almost Heretical. You can find us online at almostheretical.com. All right, well, welcome back to Almost Heretical. This is week two of Talking About Atonement. Last week we had on Mako Nagasawa. If you haven't listened to that yet, it was an excellent, long conversation, but really um, fun. And it was kind of chocked full of lots of amazing content about atonement and kind of comparing penal substitutionary atonement with um, another view called medical atonement that Mako is kind of a champion for. And this week we're just going to kind of get into questions and, and unpack this even more. I know I had a number of questions. I don't know if you did too. Hopefully I hit some of the questions that you have. It's an interesting topic though, because, you know, for me, rethinking atonement all started with uh, a book that Tim actually had me read by a guy named Rene Girard. And I have to admit, I I don't fully understand most of what he said in the book, but what I did understand enough of was kind of this different view of Jesus being this scapegoat that, and it's been something that like has happened many, many times before in history. Jesus being this scapegoat that the community kind of casts all their blame on and then murders to get rid of the problem. And then it's all done. And, you know, whatever you think about the view for me, it opened my eyes to the fact that like, Oh, the view I've held my whole life, which I didn't even know that wasn't necessarily the default best view to hold on this. So I've said this before, but penal substitutionary atonement kind of fell first. And then as I was deconstructing that, like some other things started going too, like this whole kind of heaven and hell dichotomy we have and, and, and what that means. Um, and, and some people have asked me that are still in that world, maybe frustratingly asked me like, why do you always have to be challenging everything? Why do you have to go against the status quo? You know, I guess I have two thoughts to that. The the first is, and Mako, I think did an amazing job sharing this last week, but penal substitutionary atonement isn't the status quo. And if we look at uh, history, and we're going to get into this a lot over um, this episode and and others, but if we look at history, this isn't the oldest view by far. Um, We're talking about something that's you know, a few hundred years old. And I was interested in getting back to like views that maybe were held by the early church and, and others around that time. So it's not the status quo. It's what we're used to in this country at this time, but it's definitely not the status quo. And then the second thing is, it's a little bit more personal, but I was kind of reflecting on this, like my whole life um, until the last four or five years has been kind of a a journey of being terrified of God, (laughs) Uh, just to put it really simply. And uh, you're kind of thinking about like pleasing him. And I knew that um, I didn't have to, and that it was, you know, grace was free and uh, he met me right where I am. And uh, he died for me and loved me. And, um, and it's not about earning, earning salvation or anything like that. That was, that was big. And, but I also felt like it wasn't about earning something. It was about, pleasing and about making this being happy. And it's like, well, why would I want to do that? And I think what it all came back to is like this feeling that it seemed like he was okay with being cruel and and violent towards Jesus instead of me. And so if I'm not in Jesus, he's going to want to do that to me. And it was just like this, this bad picture um, of God. And honestly, like that motivated a lot of, uh, you know, Tim and I talk about a lot. We we were in ministry, we were pastors until recently, and that motivated a lot of my desire to 
be a missionary, to be a pastor, to like be the real kind of legit Christian that's that's sold out and on fire and not lukewarm. It's mostly because I didn't want to be, um, as an old mentor used to say, spit out of the mouth of God for not being on fire for Jesus enough. And uh, yeah, so it kind of led me to just trying to constantly not earn his love, but definitely make sure that he was like pleased with me because I didn't want these terrible things to happen to me in hell for all of eternity. So it's important because it, it could potentially lead to some really terrible things. My wife and I were actually talking about this yesterday. Um, and we had, um, we had a, a, a mentor who's a celebrity pastor in the past tell us that uh, just when we, just when you start thinking like, okay, maybe we're not actually supposed to be afraid of God. It's just a respect that we're supposed to have for him, you know, in that, in this old way of thinking that we used to have. Uh, this mentor would, would tell us like, no, it's, it's supposed to be a literal fear. You're supposed to literally be terrified of God. And uh, my wife was sharing a conversation she had with, with the wife of this, of this mentor. And um, she was telling her, like, I wonder if we should, uh, when we're doing evangelism and we're talking to people about Jesus, I wonder if we should not start with the love of God, but start with like the fear of God, because he's, he's serious and he's going to, you know, kind of explain to them what he will do if, if, you know, you don't accept him basically and what eternity will look like for you if you don't. So my whole point in sharing all this is like, if any of this kind of resonates with you and you've experienced similar, similar things in, in the church or in conversations with those in the church, I just want to share like, that's why we're doing this is because you almost have to like unlearn a lot of this way of, of thinking. And it, it is, it's really traumatic for a lot of people. And I know it's been traumatic for me and I almost can't even like go to churches that, that teach penal substitutionary atonement because it kind of like, it kind of bleeds into everything. It's like a lens um, that kind of bleeds into everything. So that's what we're going to talk about today. So one of the main questions that, that came to me after um, having Mako on that I wanted to, to get to was, and we talked about it when we were doing our series on power, plug, if you haven't listened to that, go back and listen to that one. But we talked about, um, are we supposed to become something, right? So I know in the penal substitutionary atonement way of looking at the world and looking at Christianity, it's largely, you know, you are forgiven and as I mentioned, you don't have to do anything to earn that forgiveness. It's a free gift that's given to you and it meets you right where you are. So no matter how bad you are, it meets you right where you are. And that's awesome. That's great. Anyone can, can have this gift. But oftentimes, I think, you know, you and I have both seen this and we've all seen this in that world. A lot of times the extreme of that is you don't actually have to change anything about yourself. Now, the good versions, they will work on changing and, and sanctification and actually growing in, in Christ. And that's a better version of that. But my question has always been like, why? You don't, you know, you don't have to, it's not essential. It doesn't actually mean anything. It's not, it's not essential. It's good to do, but it's not essential. So I want to kind of want to talk about like in this medical restorative view of the atonement where God's more like a physician trying to heal us versus a judge pronouncing guilt or innocence. What does that look like for actually like what we do and what we become? Yeah, this question is touching on a key aspect of the problems with penal substitution. And 
long story short, I think uh, there have been for a long time in theology uh, three categories that people put uh, views of atonement into. Uh, the subjective view, an objective view, and a triumph view. And that all stems back from a guy named Gustav Allen who wrote a book called Christus Victor back in the 30s. But the, the main idea here is that most ideas of the atonement fall into a subjective category, meaning that the the work of Christ through his life, death, resurrection, and ascension does something to us. It actually changes us and accomplishes a work within us. And it's literally only the penal substitutionary view that falls into this separate category of an objective view of atonement, where we aren't actually changed. It is actually God that is changed. It's a attitude shift or a mental change that basically God wanted to punish us and Christ changes God's mind and convinces God not to punish us. And specifically, and this is the inheritance of the Calvinistic idea of double imputation, this is accomplished by essentially an act of divine pretending. So this is the idea that when God looked at Jesus, who was perfect— he pretended Jesus was us and then poured out his wrath on Jesus, killed Jesus, punished Jesus with our punishment. And now God looks at us and pretends that we are Jesus and therefore we get all of the benefits of being Jesus, not because anything has changed in us, but because God pretends that we are Jesus himself. I think that is a, a slight caricature of how some of the better penal substitutionary theologians would talk about this, but it, I don't think it's at all far from what most people have been told and believe uh, in kind of the reform neo-Calvinistic world. And so the first thing to point out is that I think any idea of the crucifixion that places the work and the success of the cross in God himself rather than in humanity, is disastrous. I mean, for one, we just need to point out that this doesn't at all jive with Trinitarian theology. If Jesus is the incarnation of God, then the idea that Jesus is somehow in conflict with God, trying to get the Father to stop doing what the Father really wants to do, the whole thing breaks apart any idea of of Trinitarian thinking, uh, but rather holding to a decent theology of the incarnation and the Trinity prevents that view. And it forces us to see that God is in Jesus doing something to change the world. And that is a lot of what Mako is trying to get at with this idea of medical atonement is to say that God's trying to heal us, transform us, change the world by ridding it of evil, which is in us. And therefore he needs to do something to set us right. So I think the first thing we can say is that any idea of atonement that asserts that what the atonement does is it changes God, it necessarily diminishes any sense of how the cross and Christianity is meant to change us. And that plays out in our morals, in our behavior, in the life of the church, all of that. And it's, I think it's captured in uh, this, you know, elevation of forgiveness and the bumper sticker, you know, I'm not perfect, just forgiven. And it plays into like mulligan theology, where basically the whole value is on being let off the hook and God doesn't essentially care about our evil anymore and what we do to one another because he's just 
not looking at that. He's looking at Jesus. Basically, it's almost impossible to hold a consistent Christian ethic alongside a view of atonement that has nothing to do with us actually being changed and transformed by it. I I even saw this the other day, just um, someone I I knows, uh, I think it was like an Instagram post or something like that, but they were kind of coming clean and saying, I'm a, I'm a liar. I'm a, uh, I'm always thinking about like, you know, myself and how I can get ahead in a situation, all these things. It was really cool to like, see this honesty of like, you know, no matter what it looks like on the outside, this is what it's actually going on in my head. Um, and it was really helpful. And then it ended with like, but you know, but God sees me as saint. He loves me. He lo- and, and maybe this isn't what was trying to be communicated, but it reminded me of like this kind of thing that's communicated where it, it's kind of the extreme version is the, um, I'm not perfect. I'm just forgiven bumper sticker of like, I'm all these things and that's just the way I am. And I kind of try to change, but it's kind of tough, but Jesus loves me anyways. And, or God loves me anyways, and I'm saved and I'm forgiven, you know? And, uh, and I'm, I'm always left with like, okay, but so what are you like, don't, aren't we supposed to <laughs> try to work on ourselves? Isn't that what this is all about? Yeah, totally. And that's why I say they're just inconsistent. And so all the ways that the people that hold the penal substitution try to work out, how the gospel relates to our transformation, it essentially amounts to what Mako was talking about uh, when he compared, you know, presentations that sound like an Asian parent. What he's saying is that the the psychological mechanism here is basically, don't you realize how much I did for you? That gratitude needs to lead you to change and be transformed. So essentially what transformation is, what the, the gospel accomplishes in humans in almost every setting that's dominated by a penal substitutionary view is gratitude or actually a sense of indebtedness is really the only thing that leads us to change. And you get some people that that emphasize the work of the spirit and, you know, emphasize grace and all that. But what it essentially amounts to is we've been forgiven and therefore from a, an appreciation of that forgiveness, all of the change that you see going on in the New Testament is supposed to be our response. And so you have this this whole system laid out of God did something and we respond to it. It's grace that causes this response in us. And I think that's a, a part of the psychology, but that's that mechanism simply doesn't produce anything like what most of us want it to produce, which leads to a great despair and frustration and confusion and existential crisis in a lot of Christians, which is very different than Paul's understanding of a new creation and Christ as an example and Christ as the cosmic victor who has defeated the powers and Christ who is liberating us from oppression, liberating us from death, from slavery to sin, all of those things. There's just so much more in the New Testament writers' minds that the cross actually has accomplished, which creates a much wider array of motivations for us. And again, Mako Nagasawa was talking about this too. He just doesn't see penal substitution being used or this, uh, this idea of indebtedness to what God did to us. He doesn't see that being used as, as motivation in New Testament preaching and, and evangelism. And that's part of what 
led him to try to figure out, okay, what are the different things that are supposed to motivate us? What is the logic of response to the gospel? What is the mechanism of transformation going on here? And that's where I think when you start to look at it closely, you just realize the reduction of the gospel to being forgiven and then being really thankful for that forgiveness is somewhat disastrous because it reduces things so far that it it asks us to do something that just simply isn't psychologically uh, coherent. It asks us to go about all of the New Testament Christ-like transformation entirely out of a response to essentially being granted impunity, which is a whole other issue all on its own. Hey, Brian, do you know anyone that was once a teenage fundamentalist? Oh, Troy, you know that I was because you and I have a podcast called I Was a Teenage Fundamentalist. I did know that. But you know what I find myself asking these days? No, I don't, but I think you're going to tell me. What about all those things that church gave us definite answers for? What are we supposed to think about all those things now? Well, funnily enough, that's what we're doing for season five of I Was a Teenage Fundamentalist. Ooh, Brian, I sense the Lord at work here. Mm, It works in mysterious ways. And we are going to unpack these things. We're going to find out what we do think about them now. So tune in to Season 5 of I Was a Teenage Fundamentalist, the official podcast for the Azusa Street Revival. (laughs) (laughs) Um, I'm not quite sure that's true, but it is available wherever you get your podcasts. So basically, we're supposed to say, oh, because God pretends that we're not guilty, we somehow will become righteous beings, which is very different from Paul's idea that we actually died and were crucified with Christ and are raised with Christ, and that we live in Christ, participating in his sufferings. The other piece, too, is that, and you you can see this all over, the experience of being granted blind forgiveness or impunity, which basically just means a kind of widespread universal acquittal, that we get off the hook for our evil. Basically, the gospel is a get out of jail free card. That actually doesn't lead to positive change in so many people. That actually has a a largely negative effect on individuals and cultures as a whole that gets you to essentially play the mulligan card to think that you get to keep doing whatever evil, whatever violence, whatever oppression that you were doing before and get to receive the benefits of the kingdom of God, the benefits specifically of being declared not guilty. And there's an, there is a small element of that contained in the crucifixion in the gospel, but it's counterbalanced with a whole litany of other things. Which is why all throughout the New Testament, you still have talk of judgment. You still have, in Revelation, talk of the need to persevere. In no way is there a release of Christians off of a moral hook, essentially. And so I think part of the the greatest travesty of the predomination of penal substitution in American evangelicalism is that when the world looks on, I think especially in the, in the last year or two, at the way we talk about what the gospel is, it simply is not good news to them. 
when Trump does and says all the cruel and heartless things that he does, and leaders in evangelicalism say, that's okay, he gets a mulligan, that the gospel is God doesn't care that Trump is doing those things. That is not good news to the world. That's horrible news. That's really only good news to the small percentage of the world that is in power, that is oppressing people, or standing by and watching that oppression. So even though in most churches you do not hear the gospel described in these blatant terms that you can get away with whatever you want, congratulations, you have your get-out-of-jail-free card, you know, enjoy your mulligan— that's not what's taught. But what is taught is that the entire point of the gospel is that Jesus takes our penalty and that we get Jesus's reward and, and we are supposed to go and live good godly lives in response to that news. But the way that that idea actually plays out in the lives of real people is something that I think we're witnessing in current politics and the state of you know the divide in America today. And it, it really is functioning ideologically as a kind of religious mulligan. And this is why we talk about how much ideas matter. If what you're saying from the pulpit or in your book or from your denominational conferences or whatever, if where that leads and the way that takes hold in, in real people's real lives and minds is by and large a toxic and unhealthy idea, then we need to go back upstream and say, what you're dispensing isn't working. It's producing bad fruit and there must be something wrong here. And I think that's that's by and large true of the penal substitutionary view of atonement. As Daisy said you love me I think there's this idea that it's almost more correct or more truthful if God is tough, right? Maybe we just have more of an experience with that in our life of authority, meaning someone's kind of coming down on you. So it's almost like viewed as as better if God is tough. And uh, I guess what I'm getting with this is like, I've heard people push back to me and say, it sounds like you're trying to just kind of create a God that, that you like um, in your image instead of just going with, the, with what the Bible says and coming under whoever he actually is. And so it's almost like this tough view of God is better in people's eyes because it's hard to, harder to stomach. You know what I'm saying? And then like this uh, easier picture of God in, let's say, the medical or, or restorative justice view it's almost like people want to go with the more difficult one because if it's difficult, it must be true or something like that. You know what I'm getting at? Yeah, I think so. And I mean, we, we touched on part of this actually when we were going through the fall and, and talking about this kind of council of other gods and, and we got into sort of the sovereignty question. We're talking about how basically Western Christianity is addicted to a view of God as the constant winner. He's not just tough, but he's always in control of everything. And we're so scared of the idea of our leader, our God, not being sovereign and supreme over every little thing that not only does it not allow us to believe the Old Testament reference to other gods and create an idea of kind of the meticulous sovereignty of God who's in control of every little awful thing that happens in life, even though that idea is horrendous. But it also leads us to reject God as being in Jesus losing at the point of the cross 
and wants us to assert, oh, no, 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 God was the powerful one who actually was in charge of the killing. Don't be fooled. God didn't lose. God was winning. He's actually the one who who is in charge of this whole thing. In a way, many that hold a penal substitution actually equate God to Pilate and the Roman Empire and Caesar and the religious establishment and Herod, the people who are participating in putting Jesus to death, rather than identifying God as incarnate in Jesus, which is the starting place for for decent New Testament theology. And it really is drawn from this idea that we need to have a big, tough, bully God. Mako talked about this a little bit when he said that there's really a lot of evidence to show that the reason 81% of evangelicals voted for Donald Trump was this deep desire to see a big, strong bully figure rise to power to represent the conservative right, specifically by enacting retributive justice, basically getting payback on, you know, the perceived enemies of conservative America. And so it's why when you see all sorts of actions that to most of us just look horrendous and deplorable, like firing people one day before they are about to reach their pension after two decades of service, that stuff gets a standing ovation and applause from those who perceive the highest good as being a big, strong figure who can get payback, essentially and inflict retributive punishment on the enemies. And so, yeah, in a lot of ways, I think this is the view of God that gets defended at every turn in a lot of Calvinistic Protestant theology, which has resulted in this addiction to or love for or at least dependence on a penal substitutionary view of atonement is because it props up this idea of God as a retributive God. And for me, when I reflect on kind of the view of God that I had early on in my Christian life and wrestling through ideas around atonement and all that, I I really look at it kind of akin to Dolores Umbridge in Harry Potter of this ruthlessly strict authoritarian teacher figure who's such a disciplinarian that they let nothing slide. Nothing gets past them. It's the the high authority in the room who will not be uh, mocked, who will not be messed with. And every little crime, every little violation will be punished. That was essentially the view of God that I was supposed to be excited about, that I was supposed to worship as holy, and uh, and that was what I was supposed to see as happening on the cross, is this holiness of God, which really just means the, the retributive, vindictive payback of God was being celebrated on the cross, rather than seeing that God had actually allowed himself to lose to the powers that we so idolize in order to undo them. seems like in the old way that I used to think about things, I mean, doctrine was everything. So when we talk about the group that that God loves and the group that is going to experience God's wrath, it was about if you are believing the correct set of truths and the correct set of doctrine and theologies. And like I said earlier, obviously that group also would teach that you need to then become like Christ. And that's, that's what that would prove that you were in that and actually believed correct doctrine because correct doctrine isn't enough. It also has to um, impact how you live. So they're not saying that completely. It's just about believing the right things. But 
it does seem to be largely about holding the right set of doctrine. Yeah, I get where did that come from and why is that still surviving? Yeah, I mean, we'll get into uh, the bigger story of kind of history of thinking in the church and the history of issues of power in the church uh, where we can unpack this some more. But I think it's it's important just to give a, a brief uh, little backstory of like where did this view of penal substitution even come from and sort of some of the surrounding pieces uh, of this ideology. And the reason, Nate, why you say this isn't the status quo is to point out that this is not the predominant way of thinking about the cross through most of church history and in most of the church. So this is not the view in the Roman Catholic Church. This has never been the view in 2,000 continuous years of of church and theology in the Eastern Orthodox Church. And actually, the way that penal substitution is held by most is is deemed heretical in the Orthodox Church. Uh, And it wasn't a view in the Western Church at all until the Reformation and specifically until uh, early forms of it showed up in the writings of Calvin. And so it's not until 16th century, three quarters of the way through church history, that you get anyone who's really talking about the cross in terms of an absorption of the penalty uh, of the wrath of God. And even then, where you have these seeds planted in Calvin, it's encompassed in a, in a much broader view of Christus Victor and a new creation and all of the other uh, motifs that hold together what the cross is accomplishing. And so then it really wasn't until... A couple hundred years later, with the rise of evangelicalism in in England and then uh, basically with Puritan theology that came over to the American colonies. And so penal substitution as a view was essentially established and developed alongside of the white slavery justifying Christianity that was created in order to prop up slavery in America. But it's these roots that they took of the Protestant Reformation and Protestant theology, and then wrap them around a theology that could be used to support slavery. And one of the critical pieces of that, as we all know, of, of the Reformation was this pushback on the Catholic Church and the ways that they had used their ecclesial authority. They were selling indulgences. They were selling off positions in the church. Essentially, it had been this huge economic corruption that one of the main ways that the reformers pushed back was this idea of sola scriptura, that you need to go back before the creation of church tradition, look at the Bible for yourself, and and we all should essentially interpret the scriptures first. And this idea is essentially the the root of not only the massive chasms within Protestant Christianity, if you have all these thousands and thousands of denominations, but it's the root essentially of the, of the idea that what really matters, that the borderline to decide who's in and who's out is about doctrinal belief, which was never uh, the way that the church had thought of things before. And so then that has expanded over the generations from simply a doctrinal belief in Jesus as Lord to and this is where I've been particularly irked, is expanded to a doctrinal belief in penal substitution itself. And this, Nate, is where you're talking about, to most of us, penal substitution isn't just a view. It's been presented as the gospel itself. And so what you need to believe to be saved is that Jesus suffered under the wrath of God to pay your penalty. That's what you have to believe. If you don't believe penal substitution, never mind the fact that it wasn't even an idea for 1500 years. If you don't believe that, then you're not actually a Christian. And then we've seen recently with stuff like the Nashville statement, 
the expansion even further to say, oh, if you don't believe all these other things about sexuality, then you're not a Christian. And even more than that, if you don't believe that those who don't believe these things aren't a Christian, then you're also not a Christian. And and this is where I just think the the irony is so stark that the wing of the church today in evangelicalism that most claims its heritage from the Reformation, the reformed wing of the church, who looks to Calvin and has developed this system of, of Calvinist theology, that is the wing of the church who most acts like the corruptive power of the Catholic church that the reformers were pushing back on in the first place. This is why we connected our discussions on atonement to the conversation about power, is that we all live in a system where part of the evangelical institution has used its religious power to define the lines of who is in and who's out around its own view of God and justice and Christianity based on penal substitution. And now they've created these coalitions of the gospel coalition and these organizations and websites and all of that to continue to push that they are the arbiters that gets to decide who is in and who's out. And it is that exact power move of a wing of the church propping themselves up as the sole determinants of who is in and who is out that the reformers were pushing back on because it leads to a whole other litany of corruption and cover-up. So it isn't just that penal substitution is wrong. Penal substitution has been used as a tool to prop up power in the evangelical world. And drawing the line at right doctrinal belief rather than in Paul's broader language of being in Christ, participating in Christ— is one of the edges of that sword that has been used to reinforce that power. Nate, you actually said your grandma had a question. Yeah, she listens to all of our shows faithfully. Thank you, Grandma. I love you very much, and I really enjoy talking with you. And so this is the segment of the show called Questions from Grandma, we'll call it. And here we go. So I'm going to read a question from my grandma. So she listened to last episode with Mako, and her question is, is he saying basically that nobody is unsaved? Um, Did Jesus' death cover all sin then? Is there no judgment or punishment at all? I know, kind of a big question, but... Yeah. So, what are your what are your thoughts on that? Yeah. Awesome. Great questions. Uh, it's a this is a lot here. Basically, sounds like she's kind of wanting to touch on universalism, hell, judgment, salvation, who's in, who's out, kind of deal. We'll probably have to devote bigger chunks of time in the future to to really dive into this stuff. But Nate, you and I have joked a couple times that as Christians, if we don't at least have a part of us that leans toward universalism, then we're probably a jerk. And what I mean by that is, <clears throat> is that the, the neo-Calvinistic penal substitutionary idea, which reaches its, its pinnacle in this idea of kind of like double predestination, where God actually almost plans for, and in the way some people frame it, almost desires that some people suffer and die and are punished and, you know, in the, in the framework, go to hell. Right, because double predestination is basically that before time, God foreknew and predestined some people 
for an eternity in heaven and some people for an eternity in hell. So there's that piece of, you know, classic predestination is just pre-predestined people beforehand for heaven, but double predestination adds in that. And so that means that he chose some people to be tortured in hell forever. Which is crazy. And and some of like, you and I have both heard people actually teach this in public to lots of people that hell itself was something that God had pre-planned almost like before the creation of the world he was so excited to one day punish in in the framework of hell that so many of these people hold basically torture and get payback upon this portion of humanity that was predestined for hell that whole thinking to me is just so backwards so missing the point and uh and toxic like psychologically emotionally i would just say abusive and so especially for those of us that have been influenced by that whole wing of the church and that whole line of thinking if we aren't experiencing some sort of emotional dissonance that is trying to draw us to an understanding that jesus died for the whole world that god loves the whole world and wants to save redeem rescue heal restore everyone and everything, then I think we've just missed the point and we got to start from scratch. I was always told that, this sounds so crazy to say that, I was always told and taught that there were two kinds of love, you know, because you got to get around John three sixteen somehow. So I was told that there was like uh, this general love that he loves like the whole world. Of course he does, right? But then there was like this saving love that was different than just his general love. And that's how, that's how that whole idea worked with John three sixteen and stuff. Yeah, again, there's just so much backstory that's omitted here and is being missing from this paradigm. And so let's just like get into it uh, just real briefly. Like where does this idea of a hell or this heaven-hell dichotomy where some people are saved and some people are not saved, where does this even come from? I mean, when I look at it, it seems like you kind of get some of that language in Matthew 25, right? Like the separating of the sheep and the goats. And some people are kind of, you know, in and some people are then out because of decisions they made in this life, basically. Right. But I think what we need to do is like try to get to what was Jesus thinking? Like what was in his head when he's picturing some sort of future judgment or future day where God will, will actually come and parse out the evil from the just in society. Like, where's Jesus getting that idea? When Paul and the other New Testament writers in the book of Revelation is using apocalyptic language and language about a day of judgment, where is this even coming from? And and I think that's what Mako is trying to point us to is we went and did this big deep dive into the fall and saw that Genesis 1 through 11 is kind of this whole multi-chaptered story about all that is going wrong that involves this cosmic war with these other gods and rebellion and humanity and this fight for power, all this stuff. And starting at Genesis 12, the, the very first time we meet Abraham running all the way through the story of Israel, the whole point is that God is committed to heal and restore and set things right. He's trying to fix all that has been broken with the whole world. And the way this hope, which is honestly, it's the central hope of the Judeo-Christian faith, is that God himself will actually be able to set right all that has gone wrong. And this gets encapsulated basically in one singular day that is the eschaton. It's the 
the day when God finally shows up, it'll be the end of this era or this age and the beginning of the new age, the new creation, the new heavens and new earth, or in the book of Revelation, the new Jerusalem that will be renewed, where things will be set right, where we will live in this paradise harmony together in peace and shalom on earth. So this hope for God to restore things gets encapsulated in this day of judgment, this day of the Lord. And the idea is he's actually the higher power who is going to come and set people free from those who are abusing their power over them. He's going to remove the kings and emperors and the unjust priests and rulers and the false prophets, those who have been abusing the people. He's going to cast them down and he will exalt the poor and marginalized and the powerless. It's this cosmic setting right, basically. But there's this key thing that gets threaded all the way through the prophets, which is that Israel is putting all of their hope in this day of the Lord for God to come rescue them. And so many of the prophets point out, wait, wait, wait. If you think that when God shows up to undo evil, that you will simply be celebrating and having a good time, you've got this thing all wrong. You have actually become the evil. You've become the oppressor. You've become the unjust leader, the victimizer, who God will have to deal with in order to set the world right. Therefore, the day of the Lord is going to be a day of fierce judgment. It's going to be something that should threaten you. And this idea of judgment, it's really why I think the idea of universalism is not a helpful pushback on this really grotesque view of God that we've inherited from Calvinism and we we rightly should be pushing back on. But the idea of universalism essentially says that God's just going to let all of us continue to do what we are already doing. And that's not good news for the vast majority of the world. Rather, the idea is that God will not continue to to let the evil things that are happening continue to happen. He will set things right, but we've got to reckon with who will that actually be good news for? I'd always kind of pictured things like there's this line and one side is like saved and one side is unsaved. And so I think this is kind of the paradigm that maybe my grandma is asking this question from because that's like what a lot of us have in our head is like, we just got to get, got to make sure we're on the right side of that line. We got to make sure we get people to the right side of that line. And it sounds like what you're saying, it sounds like you know, when I read N.T. Wright, when I listen to Mako talking, it's much more about that there's this line like right down the middle of each of us and there is good and evil in each of us and that God wants to heal that evil in us. So I think part of what my grandma would then be asking, and it's kind of that whole picture of God, right, is that he doesn't fail in anything. Um, So if he's setting out to heal that evil and that sin in each person, isn't he going to be successful in that? Isn't everyone then going to be healed? Yeah, yeah, yeah. I I think that's good. I think perhaps a, a good way to understand the basic psychology or ideal world that's that's playing out here when we talk about hell or the judgment of God or all this. So the first piece is very much that there are evil people doing evil things to others. And the hope for those who are being victimized is that a higher power would come along and stop those evil people from doing those evil things. That is a basic psychological desire that most humans can, can reckon with. It's actually something that most white privileged Americans have a hard time resonating with. We're constantly in a position of power and privilege rather than powerlessness and suffering. But that's the first piece. It's almost like uh, if you picture your workplace or your neighborhood or 
you know, your kid's school or something like that. And you picture God coming and setting that place right and turning it into a paradise, restoring and healing the whole thing. There are probably one or two people that you could picture just can't be there in this new restored community and have it be a kind of paradise. There are probably a couple of people in our head that we imagine just if they were there, the whole thing would continue to be what it is. That's the first basic piece of the psychology in even an idea like hell. But then you're right, Nate. The second piece is this idea which has been quoted in so many different places, Dostoevsky and some others, that the line of good and evil isn't between I'm good and you're evil. It also, it is that, but it also runs through each one of us. And so that's this warning that the prophets are giving Israel is that each one of us has to receive liberation and receive healing and transformation. Even victims need both things. Victims aren't innocent victims. And that's why you get so much in the New Testament about the grace of God forgiving the ungodly. And it's important to hold both those intention because so much what the the Calvinistic penal substitutionary view does is it eliminates that whole other piece of the social dynamic that God would actually have to reorder society by by casting some people down and exalting others. And it wants to say it's all about individual spiritual salvation. And so the whole thing is just about something that happens in each one of us. And it removes the whole context of societies, communities, all that. And that's where Dallas Willard goes. Listen, why would we ever think that God would do in heaven for us what we have never wanted to have done for us here and now? (laughs) What he means is, if every day you live your life, you do not want to live your life like Jesus, why do you think that, that Jesus would somehow be able to successfully, magically get you to be like him in this new reality? And so the basic framework of, of hell, or the idea of the judgment, is that God is trying to heal the whole world, in part by healing every individual, but the reality is... If we look around at those around us and if we look at our own life, there's a good chance that a lot of us simply are going to say no to that invitation. This has been a really fun conversation. We're going to have many more on atonement, um, meaning of the cross, and sort of how this whole thing is really a lens for viewing all of life and Christianity and yeah, everything. So we're going to do that next week. Thanks for coming along on this journey with us. And I'm sure Nate's grandma is not the only one with questions or pushback or stuff she'd like to talk about. So if any of you guys out there have anything for us, we'd love to hear from you. Go ahead and email us at contact at almostretical.com or hit us up on Twitter or Facebook. Thanks. See you guys. Later. Later.